Hi, I'm Algie Hall, an associate editor here at the Investors Chronicle, and you're about to hear my conversation with Michael Moberson. Michael is a highly respected Wall Street strategist, the author of several books, and a professor of finance at Columbia University. My discussion with Michael is about a recent paper he wrote in reaction to research into the sources of mistakes that people make when forecasting. Michael has written widely on the kinds of techniques that investors can employ to avoid making mistakes, and this is what our conversation chiefly focused on. Many of Michael's ideas are included in our cover feature this week, a seven-step guide to getting a behavioral edge. It was a real privilege to speak to Michael, and it's a privilege to share the conversation with you. Right, well, it's, it's a real pleasure to talk to you, actually. And also, I, I kind of feel like I should begin just by saying thank you, because I've yeah, been introduced to so many really great ideas by reading your work. So um, I, I am a fan. I'll try to make this not too fancy. So. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. Thank you. I, I kind of wanted to start by just asking you something, which was kind of the um, from the conclusions of uh, the, the been, been there, done that piece, which um, I was just really interested when I when I read that um, the training techniques um, designed to reduce bias, you say, appeared to be effective in dealing with noise as well. And um, it just tallied with something I was thinking when I was reading the article, which is that um, what was says this very um, interesting separation of noise and bias errors, whether the behaviours which lead to both types of error are quite often intertwined. You know, first of all, I should just underscore that that was, that that finding came from the research done by Tetlock and Mellers and all those folks. So that wasn't me. That was just me reporting on what they found. And I, I, by the way, I I also, I personally found this whole line of research fascinating, right? And and revelatory. Mm -hmm. And i you know, have been following as closely as I can the work by Kahneman and Cass Sunstein and Siboney uh, on noise. So I, I was familiar with that, but I hadn't seen this deconstruction. So, yeah, I guess it's an interesting point about this training. And we, you know, some, as, and, and as they point out, there are different forms of training, some that does, you know, just telling people about biases tends not to, certainly not unpleasant, but doesn't help anybody get better. But it's interesting that I guess the point here that we don't really know, or this is this is some insight as to the cause and effect of this, what this training actually does. And um, I guess the to me the the main theme is just getting people to be more systematic in how they think about solving problems or making predictions. So yeah, I guess it makes sense once you learn about these techniques that it would that would perhaps serve both reducing noise and reducing bias but uh, it's not I guess I guess in, in, as you think about it it makes some sense that it would reduce noise as well okay and and also um you, you just touched on that the the idea that um you can you, you, you can teach people um about biases which exist but um it doesn't really do very much but so we, so the teaching has to be about um checking for um che- ways of checking your own biases and I was just wondering, you know, why you think there's such a great distinction there? Yeah, because I think that without having specific uh, tools to allow people to improve the quality of their judgments, um, it doesn't seem to stick for whatever reason. And, you know, I, I've always found it interesting, and I certainly would would have the same experience that, um, you know, Kahneman has said many times that notwithstanding that he uncovered many of these um, 
these biases that he still finds himself subject to them all the time. So obviously he's much more aware and I'm assuming he's coping with them. But uh, it, the fact is they don't go away. They're, they're just sort of, uh, you know, it's somewhat, it's like, um, it's like a visual perception yeah. problem, right? Like, oh, uh, yes. called? what are they called? Um, illusion. <laughs> optical, it's like yeah. an optical illusion. So, you <laughs> know, an optical illusion, you know, you know that what you're seeing is not what you're seeing, but <clears throat> your mind can't, it keeps telling you that it, it is, you know, that you're you're seeing the wrong thing. Um, and I'll just mention, uh, you know, I, I alluded to these briefly, but uh, you know, techniques such as using base rates or pre-mortems or red team, blue mm -hmm. team, or um, journaling your decisions in such a way that allow you to give yourself intermediate feedback as your decision, as as the the, the facts around your decision unfold. I think are all. They're all, they're not expensive techniques. They're not complicated. Um, they require some discipline, but those are all very straightforward things that people can do to, to help get better. Well, yeah, no, I, I really wanted to get um, a bit more into that. I mean, one, one of the things which I was reading, actually following um, the notes on your piece to another um, earlier tech te paper was that, um, uh, that there's some evidence that even just asking yourself the same question twice can um, produce a far more effective um, response. And that plays right into noise, right? Because that's the whole point of noise is that, that you know, you, you and I answer the same question twice that we're not going to be completely consistent. And how do we reduce noise is, you know, of course, we could average our own guesses. But if you add your average, if you're if you're unsystematic in your decision or in your and your responses, then averaging against yourself actually will get you more closer, closer to the answer. So it's kind of a neat little uh, technique yeah so that that that, that makes sense if, if that is noise and noise is truly non-systematic that would actually make complete sense also you mentioned um base rates and um i kind of feel you're you're you could be described as a person who wrote the book on base rates thing as yes. you did write a book on base rate exactly. credit suite <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but uh, but I was, I was really interested in just in in terms of um how good that is at um, improving decision making in, in, in terms of um, the research. But but also you, you make the comment that um, base rates are um, woefully underutilized. Yeah. And I was just wondering what what you think the barriers are to people actually adopting base rates. Let me let me uh, well, let me first answer that question then and then perhaps, you know, the limitations. Um, I think that there are two barriers primarily. One is um, that when you've proceeded with the inside view, right? So you've actually studied something, you've gathered information, and perhaps you have an experience with it or an intuition about how something works. You feel like you've done your job, right? You feel like you've uh, sort of completed the task. And uh, you tend to place a lot of weight, we all tend to place a lot of weight on our own information and our own sense of how things should be. So that's the first is just, we're biased to believe that what we've done is sufficient to solve the problem. And then the second one, which is, um, which is not trivial, is that base rates are often not at your fingertips. Um, you know, you move from one city to another. Um, it's a very new, it's a unique experience for you, right? It's your first time, but many people have probably made very similar types of journeys and you just don't know about that and what their experiences have been. So we just don't, we just don't think about or know of or appeal to the base rates, even if they're out there. And that's one of the reasons we really want to spend time putting together um, corporate performance data, not not so much because it would be shocking to anybody, just because I, I personally had a thirst to understand those things and just had never seen it before, like quite literally had never seen it. So the first time I saw a lot of those data were when we actually put it together, which was um, 
which was quite interesting. Now, you made a comment, like I say, that you know it's woefully underutilized. Um, I, I think where these kinds of ideas work the most effectively is where we have pretty well-behaved distributions of outcomes. So things like you know revenue growth rates, you know they're not perfectly mm-hmm. normally distributed, and of course there's always going to be the extreme company, you know, because the distribution is going to shift over time. But for the most part, there's going to be a lot of um, value in applying that and thinking about businesses using that lens or margins or return on capital patterns and those kinds of things. Um, where the distributions are heavily skewed or even power laws, where they're really the notion of a mean, and an average really is a nonsensical average uh, a concept, that's going to get much more difficult. And so, you know, that and that's, that is some things in our day-to-day life. Um, things that are awfully socially driven, um, book sales, music sales, um, film sales. There is some predictability with sequels and stuff like that, but for the most part, we don't really know exactly um, and and uh, how they're gonna uh, how they're gonna perform. And it's a power law. You know, many things do very poorly, and a few things are just huge blockbusters. So the the nature of that outcome is very different. So that's where I mean, knowing about the distribution, of course, is very very helpful in and of itself. And certainly if you talk to a music producer or a, uh, an editor, as you know, for, for books, they, they all know that this is the case. But that's a great, I mean, those are, it's a great line of inquiry. And so, so my point is that when I say that it's underutilized, there are lots of domains where we have a lot of good statistics mm-hmm. um, that can be gathered um, with perhaps in some cases with some effort, but can be gathered and people just don't pay much attention to them. And, and, and that, that's why I'm in mean, the base rate book that you refer to that corporate, you know, that's, that's data that's, you know, people should be using and thinking about. Yeah. And I mean, also, I mean, do, do you think people have a tendency to think the situations they're looking at are a bit more special than they are? So, um, especially after forming that, um, in, inside view. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's part of the psychology of all this, right? Which is we tend to think our own um, experiences are more unique than they are in reality. You know, Dan Gilbert wrote this great book called Stumbling on ha- Upon Happiness, which you might know, I don't know he wrote yeah. it a dozen years ago or something. But he talks a lot about this idea that that we have a sense of uniqueness, but in fact, often our our thinking is is benefited by by recognizing our commonalities, right? So we are unique, obviously, in some ways. But, but the commonalities are often um, more useful to think about. So, yeah, I think that's right. And, and again, it goes back to the same thing. Like you've done, I've asked you to do research on something and, you you know, you've done it and you, you research, where you research a company and you've read about it and you build a model and you talk to the company. So, you know, you've put in effort and you believe that your your initiative itself is of value and you, and you obviously place value on your own uh, sense of what's going on versus, again, relying or deferring to something that feels like it's um, – a little bit, you know, I, I think I think Kahneman used the term pallid for statistical reasoning. You know, it, it just doesn't resonate with you, whereas it's much more intimate and, and uh, persuasive to be to to do to rely on your own work. No, as as a writer, I know all about the power of narrative. Um, yes. I, yeah. I mean, I, I was wondering actually also in terms of um, the inside view or just bias in general. Um, I, I mean, I, I was. Um, from from, re- from reading your paper, I was left thinking about the kind of ability of that to amplify noise, as it is it, it, it were. And I suppose so. This is kind of coming back slightly to the um, to the first question I ask. Uh, if if I'm, for instance, um, you know, bullish on something, and then then my overconfidence 
takes over and my forecast is therefore wildly optimistic in the reverse being true when I'm when I'm bearish. I mean, um, do, 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 you see, do you see this lack of control of, um, of those biases as maybe amplifying all the results we see from? Um, yeah, from the- I mean, I think that, that it's an interesting because, again, now we have to also make another distinction between, you know, you, you and I could be uh, wildly bearish or bullish, uh, maybe even on the same thing. But we in, in reality, we have to deal with prices, right, with markets. Yes. And so so there's another component, which is the market itself represents the collective um, wisdom or madness of the crowd. Right. So yes. um, and, 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 and I, it probably vacillates between those two states. And so, yeah, um, you, you might think that everything's way wildly overvalued but it's hard for your voice to be heard. You can sell what or go sell short or whatever, or you could think things are wildly undervalued and buy as much as you can, but there's, there's a limit to what we can do. Um, and I, and I, you know, it's actually, I'm, and I'm rich, reading a very interesting book called um, perfectly, perfectly confident by Don Moore. This book just came out in the last couple of weeks and it's about, and, and Don's done a lot of work on overconfidence as a general concept. And, you know, there's, there's some, uh, there may be some virtues in overconfidence in the sense that, you know, this optimism isn't in some ways motivating, but I think he makes a very sensible case. That, and, uh, and, and by the way, also being uh, underconfident, you know, so for example, if you're a student and you're about to take an exam, you know, the sense I'm going to, I'm going to fail, fail, may motivate you to work harder to prepare for instance, right. To lead to a better mm-hmm. outcome. So there, so there can be virtues of both of these things, but his, his argument is ultimately, you know, that the ideal is to be well calibrated. And, and so that's uh, and, and it's very difficult to be well calibrated unless you really keep track and give yourself feedback and so forth. So, um, yeah. And, I, and so I, I don't know. But like so there, there you know, one of the bi- optimism or overconfidence is considered to be a bias. That is I think that's true. Um, and uh, and and Don actually wrote a couple papers to be very careful about how it, how it manifests in the real world. I think that the. I, may, yeah, I think I wrote about it briefly, but this, the one I think is most relevant for investors is the concept of over-precision, is that we, mm-hmm. we tend to think we understand how the future will unfold um, better than we actually do. And so we, we, the, the scenarios we paint are, are not imaginative enough or, or varied enough to capture the reality. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. And, um, so if if I can just ask you, I was very keen to ask you about um, your comment on um, me, mediating assessment protocols, because um, I've got a bit of a vested interest here. And in, in, in my email, I think I kind of slightly explained it, that we've been, um, you, 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 we, we run share tips in our magazine and um, we've got a, we have a system, a very simple system, just in terms of breaking down the, the um, decision-making process. And I, I mean, as I understand it, that's what mediating assessment protocols mm-hmm. are. They're kind of yeah. unpackaging decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and your, 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 your comment in the piece was that um, uh, they're more useful in uh, guiding organizational decisions and investment choices, mm-hmm. which, um, it, which um, slightly broke my heart in some way. But... <laughs> oh, it should, though. I, and first of all, I applaud you. I think it's great. And I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in the front row wishing you continued success with that. Um, I, I guess my, my um, reservation would be I, – I, and that's why I did it as a mental experiment in the, in the paper as well, which is to say something like – you know, what would the world look like if markets were perfectly efficient? You know, we have these things, this bin model. Do, do, would any of this be relevant? And the answer would be no, right? Because 
noise doesn't matter, bias doesn't matter, information's reflected in asset prices, and so we just go about our merry way. And so everyone earns what they're supposed to earn and so forth. Now we know that's not true, but it's it's not it's it's not as far from the truth as, you know, everything's sort of completely chaotic and random and so forth, right? So yeah. So that's that to me is it's in and you know and markets have different degrees of rand, of of efficiency and so on and so forth, but um, the reason I'm I like so much what you're doing is that I do think that um, that disaggregating and and so by the way I it, it's interesting that the the application where I've used me, the the protocols historically has been actually in interviewing and I think that's the example mm-hmm. actually given the piece but that but that I have found to be the most uh, I, I think most interviewing is done very poorly. Uh, that's I think that's been well documented. You know, you and I sit down and have a coffee and just chat about the world. It's proven very non-predictive of of success for a job. And I do think some. And this is what Kahneman talked about. He did in the Israeli army many years ago, just developing some protocols to understand what skills we're trying to identify and to be systematic and. And having different people do it independently, systematically assess those those skills. So, to the degree to which you can really specify what you believe are the ingredients of a good investment, for instance, and and you feel confident that if these things are these criteria are met, you're going to be good. Uh, this is not a you know certainly not a bad way to go at it, right? Because you're ensuring that you're you're being systematic and you're ensuring you're being thorough. And if you have multiple even if you have multiple people, for for example, perhaps evaluating on those criteria that you select, yeah. um, and independently come to this to similar conclusions or the same conclusion, that probably raises your confidence that you've got something interesting. So, yeah. So my my when I when I said that, I was mostly thinking about market efficiency. And you know, we know just we just know empirically it's very difficult for people to do much. It, it's not, of course, people do do better in the market, but it's just empirically, we know that. Um, it's 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 not a trivial task. Absolutely. Well, no, that's that's some um, yeah. That's it's good it's good to know that um it's not necessarily um a completely useless um venture. <laughs> it's definitely not. And and I'll say that it, as you saw that I also alluded to this a number of times, which is and we wrote another piece on this where I talked about it in a little bit more depth. But it's a very interesting thing as an investor if you say and and you know this is probably more sophisticated someone who does this for a living. But if you really say let's evaluate sort of the whole process from where an idea comes into to our awareness to how we assess it to how we build it and put into the portfolio and how we construct a portfolio you know as you think about that whole process the question really is what what are those tasks can be achieved you know call it algorithmically or systematically and then where does judgment come into play and if you're a discretionary investor I think there's no question that there's going to be judgment right it's just a question of where that judgment applies and where it doesn't really apply and I think the example I gave was, you know, position sizing, you know, if, yes. you know, and I think the position sizing can be something that end, ends up being sort of somewhat of a mathematical calculation, provided you have, you use your judgments to, to inform these um, various, you know, inputs, out, objectives and constraints and so forth. So it's, it's an interesting, and I, and I do think you, because my sense is still the systematic investors and discretionary investors are two different tribes that have a very difficult time communicating with one another. And yeah. if we were to try to find common ground, this may be one step. Um, you know, the systematic people recognizing the judgment is uh, important in some cases, and then certainly the discretionary people re- recognizing that some tasks that they're trying to to, um, to take on um, could be done better systematically. And that, of course, would be very valuable in, in uh, reducing or at least partially reducing noise, right? If I if I if 
I'm very consistent when I get an input, I have the same output. That algorithm, that means I've reduced or minimized or yeah, noise, which is good. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I was very interested in. Um, I mean, I, I think it's. I thought it's fascinating what you were saying about position sizing and also um, some of the research about. Um, uh, that, that, that was um, buying fast, selling fast, buying slow, I think. Yeah, I'm, skeptical. I'm, skeptical. And, um, I'm skeptical about that myself, but yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I wrote about it, but I'm skeptical. I mean, here, here's why I'm skeptical. I'll just say that, um, and I'm friends with the people that produce this stuff. I, I do. There, there were two things in there, and one of them I was more persuaded of than the other. The, the, the first was that... Um, you know, look, it, you know, this idea that I buy well and I create alpha and then I sell too late or whatever. But, you know, for every buyer, there's a seller, right? And mm-hmm. in the aggregate markets, complete markets, alpha nets to zero, right, before fees. Mm-hmm. So in some way, there, there ha- it has to be zero sum. So that that's sort of, sort of an open question. There can't be just sort of Sorry. one person gaining that all, you know. So, again, you know, your positive alpha is my negative alpha. In, the, in, in this, in the, it's a zero sum by definition, right? Because alpha is a y-intercept of a regression yeah. and it has to be a zero. Okay, so that's that's the first thing. So uh, now, if you open up the world and say, well, it's not a closed system, it's not a zero sum, and there are other parties interact with investors, including corporations and so forth, the, the the waters get muddied in that case. But I just don't know that it's that tidy. Now, the second one where I actually felt I was, I feel more comfortable with is that that there's a, a consulting firm where the guy would go sit down with a portfolio manager, the fund manager, and say, tell me how you want to size positions. And then the fund manager sort of, you know, in, 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 in a quiet moment, a hopefully a thoughtful moment, like spells out how he or she size, wants to size positions or how they do it, mm-hmm. at least conceptually. And then the uh, this consultant guy writes it down. And uh, what he found or what he claims that he found was when he reviewed how those managers actually sized positions, that they deviated uh, quite a bit from what they said they wanted to do or what they said they did. Right. So his his point was, gee, if you just did what you said you, you laid out, you would actually be more effective. And it was something ins- it was not insignificant. It was like 75 basis points a year or 100 basis points a year or something like that. of performance It's in the piece, I think. So, yeah. Um, so that's so so you know all of us you know it's just like anything it's like uh you say oh, i'm going to go on this diet or i'm going to go on this workout regimen it's you know it's very well specified but the key is really the execution not saying saying what it is the the, the diet regime can sound wonderful but unless you actually execute it it doesn't do much i, I was looking it up actually in, in in your note just before we um spoke because i thought there'd been um You'd mentioned that there, people don't follow through, or professionals don't follow through um, their most um, their best ideas with conviction in their portfolio. Did 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 you reference that in the notes? I may have referenced that. There, there are some papers on that topic. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So um, I yeah I, I may have alluded to that. I, I'm not sure I totally know what I believe about that, um, but. And, and by the way, it's it's not a it's not an it's not an easy thing, right? Because in investing, when you're long only in particular, mm-hmm. you have expected values for particular securities, and if you buy something that goes up, right? All things being equal, and I'm not saying they are, but all things being equal, your expected returns go down, right? So you should be a smaller position, and vice versa, right? The, the stock goes down, all things being equal, the expected returns go up. Now, 
obviously things are not always equal, so they're, it's a more dynamic situation that, but that means that the things that are bigger, things you want to be small, and you know, so, so it's a tricky thing. But um, I think that there has been a fair bit of research that shows that um, most managers add very little value from sizing, and most of the value they add is through position size, is through security selection. So mm-hmm. um, the question, I guess the open question is, might there be ways to more efficiently capture that uh, skill and s- security selection, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have lots of, <clears throat> I have friends who work for these multi-strategy firms, right? So they're, they're literally looking at uh, dozens and dozens of portfolios and uh, systematically analyzing the actions of the fund managers. And I think they, they would say uh, one in 10 of their managers, they see actually add value from sizing. Almost none of them do. Right, right. That's very interesting. Um, so so I, I, I wanted another thing that I wanted to ask um, you about just from um, from the paper was um, uh, the issue of uh, free, the frequency of um, updating beliefs. And um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it just seems like this is obviously an amazing skill to have, but it also seems to be an incredibly rare skill to have and one which people find it very hard to acquire. I was just wondering what you um, ha- ha- how you view it. <coughs> I think it's a really interesting one, and um, in many of these decision-making sort of qualities, I always do wonder how much of it is just people's personalities versus, you know, sort of like the way they are, nature, if you will, versus mm-hmm. what they're trained to do. And clearly, and I think we, you know, I allude to it. I think that the work by by Tedlock and others suggests that many of these are skills that can be cultivated. Um, but yeah, it's this idea of um, of being open-minded and being as attuned to new information and uh, being able to assess it and then to revise your priors not only in the right direction <laughs> which hopefully we can get bluntly right but also in the in the right magnitude and I do I do think it's interesting that that the super forecasters tended to adjust their probabilities both more frequently than the regular forecasters, and also with more granularity than the super for, than regular forecasters. So both both more often and, and with finer resolution, which is really interesting, right? So the and, and mm-hmm. you would think, you know, is this sort of a false thing? But apparently, it's actually um, actually adds some value. So you know, how do you get people to do that? I don't know, but that that's a I think that's a really interesting quality, and part of it is that. You know, this goes back to confirmation bias, which I think we also yes. allude to in the piece, is that, you know, the truth is that uh, most of us are cognitively lazy. And once you've sort of made up your mind about something or have a belief about something, the path of least resistance is to keep believing what you believe, right? In fact, con- when confronted with evidence that your belief is false or, or only partially true, I mean, most of us would just prefer not to. It's cognitively taxing to try to, to change mm-hmm. your mind. And so... Uh, I think these super forecasters or this quality we all want to emulate is is a is not a it's it's a cognitively challenging thing to do because you're con- you not constantly changing your mind but you're constantly revising your views so you can't be wedded too strongly to any particular thing and on Tedlock's got this line in the book which I in super forecasting which I love and he says you know um, beliefs what is it um, not treasure to be printed beliefs are Something like, you know, um, oh, I'm, fr- 
I'm spacing on the line, but it's something like it's they're not beliefs are not treasures to be protected. They're they're things you need to update all uh, update all mm-hmm. the time. So anyway, yeah. So I don't know. I know you know how, how you do that, but uh, one of the things I will say and having written about the super forecasting stuff a fair bit and this idea of keeping track is that, and this is one of Kahneman's big things, is just documentation of your decision process can be very helpful. And even yeah. maybe even the things you're doing, I mean, I know you're doing the media assessment protocol, which is really great. And that is giving you, you know, some sort of r- rigorous sense of how you approach something, but even saying, you know, here's what we expect the market's going to miss. Um, he, here's, here's the way we're going to, Here's the way that's going to be man- it's going to manifest, and here's the probability that will occur. And as as it occurs or doesn't occur, you're going to have these uh, you're going to get intermediate feedback that allows you to update your views. And just I think I think the other lesson about all this stuff on probabilistic thinking is the more we practice, the better we get at it. So yeah. it's like anything. And so just just creating the the apparatus and then actually doing it and practicing getting feedback will make people better. I mean, I, I, I found, um, uh, I mean, you, you talk about in the paper, the fact that people um, are, are better with probabilities when it's expressed in numbers rather than words. And especially as a writer, I kind of wonder whether that's, you know, it's depersonalizing um, what's the um, what's actually being said. Right. By the way, the quote is um, beliefs, are, <laughs> beliefs should be hypothesis that should be tested, not treasures to be that's it. So beliefs are hypotheses to be tested, not treasures to be protected. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't know if you saw. We I referenced it, but I it was it was actually a very fun professional thing for me. So I did a I did a we did a little write up in the Harvard Business Review. I did it with my oldest son about words to probabilities. And I don't know mm-hmm. if you saw that. So so I'll just tell you about it. And as a yeah. writer, you'll find this quite interesting. So um, we we selected 23 words or phrases that are common to think about. You know, probabilities are possible and so forth. And then we put we put them on a website, probabilitysurvey.com, and then people who come to it are served those words or phrases in random order. So there there's no bias in just how people see them. And then you're asked to look at a word and then attach a probability to it, a numerical probability. And then we report back on, and we've had thousands of people do this. We report back on what people say, what probabilities they associate with various words. And, you know, as you might expect, certain words or phrases evoke very narrow probabilities. So most people kind of converge to the same answer. But other phrases or words have huge ranges of interpretation. So a, a phrase like it's a real possibility, the fifth and 95th percentiles are like 20% and 80%, right? So if you say yeah. something, you write an article and say this is a real possibility, you should acknowledge that your audience, you know, some of your audience is going to hear one in five and some of your audience is going to hear a three and four, right? And it's a very different, uh, very, very different thing. So that's why this, this numerical probability thing. Now, so, sometimes it sounds overly precise, but there even are techniques to allow you to translate, translate your beliefs into, into numerical probabilities or bets in ways that are more concrete. So, yeah, it's so as a writer, you know, and by the way, I, you know, I, I try to do a little bit of writing, too, and I, I'm with you on this. <laughs> I think that I think it's really important that there were storytellers. Right. And so mm-hmm. it is if, you, if you're trying to be an effective communicator, you have to be a storyteller. The question is whether you can envelop, you know, your 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 statistical reasoning in the story in some way that makes it, you know, you basically put a little less sugar around the pill and let people eat it that way. So. The, the stories of the sugar that allowed to go down. Um, 
yeah there's always ways of trying to creep around what you're actually saying that may <laughs> provide you, know, you escape route. i'll just mention something else it's funny that sometimes i read i'll read even books or journals articles or so forth and and i and i'll read it and i'll believe it i understand it and i'll keep going and then i'll go to write something where i really need to understand it and i'll go back and then i'll reread it and then i'll then I'll, it'll become clear to me that the author didn't really understand what he or she was talking about, right? And so they use <laughs> words or phrases or to, to, to be able to sort of get it, get something out there, but without really, you know. So it's a funny thing how that works, right? Because um, th- there's a there's a sort of a superficial level, but people who are really good get the deeper light away. So it's a, yeah. a topic for another day. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's something for every writer to aspire to, to be the, yeah, the, the, the person who explains things simply. Um, oh, you, you, I'll tell you this, like Michael, Lew- uh, Michael, well, the t- Matt Levine at Bloomberg. Have you read read his column? You know that guy? Yes, I do. I, I, I don't I don't read him come totally regularly, but yeah, I do know oh him. My yeah. God, that guy, that guy, I think is unbelievable, and he's he's funny, and he's you know I I, I find him great. And then the other one is, and I'm, I'm not sure he gets everything right either, but is Michael Lewis, which is just the guys. It's like embarrassing <laughs> how good that guy is. And I don't know, it just comes off. Makes it look easy, but I know it can't be that easy. I I wanted to ask you also just about um the the comments on um wait the weighting of information kind of later on when you're talking about in, yeah. information the weighting of information is kind of all back to front and the way um people naturally come at it. I think you said when the strength of information is high yeah. and the weight is low, people become overconfident, overconfident right. which is exactly when there's you know just a, a tiny bit of evidence but yeah very weak that's right that's um right. i was just kind of structures that um can be put in place in terms of the techniques that you talk about which yeah, um that's a tricky like, one yeah i think that's a i think that's a really tricky one um the um because the, because you know the question is the, again the, the, the reason I struggle is because many of the, the answers to these kinds of questions or the discussion we should have about these kinds of questions is very domain specific, you know, so mm-hmm. in some areas that it, it's all very easy to do, you know, so I give these examples of coin, coin flipping, which is uh, no, you can conceive of no simpler system than that, right? So the point mm-hmm. becomes quite vivid, but in the real world, it becomes much more, much more nuanced. Um, I wrote a, I wrote a uh, HBR article and it was a, it was called what makes for a useful statistic and it, it gets to a little bit to this and by the way this is these are ideas that are well understood in the statistical world right so mm-hmm. for something to be useful there there have to be two um elements one is that it's persistent and persistent means that it correlates with itself over time and that often means you do need sample size to make it um grounded so i guess the main point there is just sample size is really important and then the second component is that it's predictive of the outcome you're trying to achieve and that's also um you know there there are statistics that are very persistent but not predictive of anything and 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 others that are very predictive but not persistent Mm -hmm. so uh people do have to give a lot of thought to that that you and i could have the same same 10 bits of information but how we order them and weight them can be very materially different it actually ties back to the portfolio construction point. And I'll just mention that a exercise I do with my students every year, which I always find interesting, is I, I hand them a sheet with 25 companies on it, stocks. And uh, what we're working off is the actual 2013 year. So they, I'm assuming people don't remember what happened in the stock market seven or eight years ago. And mm-hmm. so I say pick uh, no fewer than five 
uh, and of course up to 25 of these securities. So you build your little mini portfolio and then weight them as you see fit. So you can, you know, if you want to have 25 and each is a 4% weight, or you want to have five and they're each 20, 20% weight, whatever you want, right? So anything with those parameters in place. And then I, after they've built their little portfolios, I hand them the second sheet with the actual returns of the stocks, right? Now, I, I constructed in such a way that if you bought all 25 and equal weighted them, you would earn the S&P 500 return, like on the button, right? So that that's mm-hmm. sort of the benchmark. And we would get we get ranges from students losing 10% to people making 100%, right? So the, my point is you have the same raw material, right, in quotation marks, right, which is mm-hmm. the same 25 stocks and the same instructions from me. Sorry, so everybody's got the same basic raw materials. And with those same raw materials, we get very, very different outcomes, right, conclusions. So that's a little bit like the information waiting thing. Um, the other thing I'll say on that is I, I wrote a chapter about it in one of my books, and I always uh, – the story I told about this was uh, one I – and I, I, don't, I think it's true. I don't think it's apocryphal, which is um, Bill Gates apparently in the 1990s used to walk around with a list of priorities for Microsoft. And, uh, you know, so whatever he was thinking about that was important about the future of the company. And a couple of his engineers went to uh, a conference at Cornell University. Uh, This is like 92, 93, something like that, where they learned about the Internet and what was happening with the Internet. And they came back to uh, Seattle and they said, Bill, like this Internet thing is going to be huge. And he's like, no, it's on my list. It's number five. (laughs) And they said, no, you don't understand. Like it should be number one and then a huge gap and then everything else. And apparently, you know, that's when sort of Gates saw the light and, and reshifted it, you know, reemphasized the company's orientation more toward the Internet. But that's a good example where he had it. It wasn't new information to him. It just wasn't uh, it wasn't weighted sufficiently. So I yeah. think it's a, tr- it's a skill. It's a tricky thing. And even going back to your to your map, right, like you think about, uh, OK, so I have my I have my factors that I think will contribute to success in my investment idea, or in my hiring process or whatever it is. But even even those are they all equally weighted, or should some things be? Do we know that some things yeah. tend to be more important than others? You, you've mentioned um, the the map, and um, I, it's kind of it brings me back to the idea of algorithms, which you also talk about, and when algorithms can be used and when they when they can't. Because I, I I think I mentioned to you, I've, I've um, I, I mean basically my the, the map that I've done, it's um it's uh, the Israeli army uh, test and um. Uh, and, and so we're, you know, we're almost interviewing job candidates for yeah, <laughs> interviewing exactly. stocks. Yeah. Uh, you know, do you, uh, do you have good momentum? Do you have value? Things like that. That's right. Um, just in terms of how uh, applicable algorithms are and when they should and shouldn't be used, um, you, you make a distinction about um, that in the paper in the paper as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that it really is ends up being a uh, it's a cause and effect, right? When you can I, and you can map out cause and effect. I think that tends to be where algorithms should be used. I think the general finding, going back to Paul Meal, which I wrote about briefly, is that mm-hmm. yeah. algorithms tend to be very effective and, under, again, underutilized because we rely on our, our judgment. I, um, I was uh, visiting with uh, someone who just graduated from medical school and uh, is going into becoming an emergency room doctor, and he was saying, I said, I said how's, you know, how, do you, how are you guys trained? And he's like, it's basically algorithms now. You know, you come in oh. and we're taught these algorithm algorithms, and you know, obviously we we have to in, in, incorporate our judgment from time to time. But basically, the default is the algorithm. So this is actually not being taught um, in medicine, which is also quite interesting. 
the, the other thing I found really uh, fascinating, and there are a couple papers I allude to in their um, reference, but um, is the work by Cade Massey, Cade Massey and some of his colleagues on algorithm aversion. And the idea is that, um, well, first of all, that many of us um, become very averse to using algorithms, especially if the algorithm spits out the wrong answer, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if a human spits out the wrong answer, the human uh, will say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I was overweight. I was overweight the airlines. My, my fault. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't see this thing happening, but I've readjusted my portfolio and, and now we're good to go. We're, we're ready to, right? And so there's a, there's almost like a, a narrative again that can be uh, explained. So um, ex post explanations, whereas the algorithm, of course, has, uh, can, can say nothing. So um, the, the technique that, and, and I, I love this, you know, Kahneman called it, uh, the first time I met with Kahneman, he, he laid out this concept and I wrote it down. I, it, it's always stuck with me is this idea of disciplined intuition, which is, and you, you mentioned the Israeli army thing, which is use the algorithm first, see how that, see where that gets you, and then introduce your judgment at the very end versus yeah. starting with your judgment and then using the algorithm because you're going to be skewed by your prior views. I love that as a, I, I love that as a discipline. And I, and I do, because by the way, there are many things in life. In, in fact, many things related to markets and business where human judgment is actually still very valuable. I think it's going to be a long time before we can use anything uh, approaching, for example, machine learning to understand what's going to happen. I, I think machine learning and those techniques, even statistical techniques, are very valuable for shorter term horizons. So quick trading and so forth. But mm. if you say, what will the world look like in three years or five years or 10 years or 15 years, there's simply no because there's no you can't train anything because there's no nothing to train it on. So. Um, human human judgment now whether humans are better than how, how good humans are at this is another question but but certainly judgment can be very viable in that in that regard yeah no I, I always think that um the, the well the disciplined intuition the the kind of final um bit of the algorithm which was added in um and being the the judgment of, uh, of the assessor and it actually exactly. turning out more valuable it's kind of it's slightly pandora box-esque like yeah <laughs> out of yeah. the it's um hope hope from the bottom of the box <laughs> it is it is just in terms of um feedback um and i you've talked a lot about kind of writing things down and journals and everything i mean obviously with investing feedback's so hard because um there's so much luck in, involved mm -hmm. as, as well as skill and uh, obviously you've written extensively about disentangling the two and how um tricky it is yep. um is is um is is the kind of journal keeping and writing down the decision, the the um how the decision was made is is that a real key to getting feedback? In the I think it is. And so I I think you know I take your point, which is exactly right, which is it's very difficult to get feedback because it or let's say in the in the short to intermediate term the feedback is very noisy. Let's say right because prices mm -hmm. themselves uh, incorporate lots of things that are, are maybe unrelated. So but the point being that. If you have a thesis to buy something or sell something, uh, what you're saying is that you believe something about the world that is not priced into the security, right? So you have to have some sense of what that is. And that should be something you can A, articulate, and then B, uh, write it down. And I think I may have alluded to it in the piece, but just to be more concrete, and again, this is, I, I tip my hat, this is all Phil Tetlock, I'm, I'm getting this from him, but this idea of the Breyer score, right? And so for you to have a Breyer score, you need three things. One is an outcome that we can agree upon. 
So if it occurs, you know, we sold 110 widgets or we did not, right? So we, we're going to mm -hmm. agree on that. Second is a specified date. So by a particular time, so we're not, nothing's open-ended. And then third is it's got to be important to your thesis, right? So you have this thesis. Um, if you have those three criteria, then you're in business, right? And what you're going to do is make forecasts and you're going to attach probabilities to your non-consensus view occurring, right? Mm -hmm. And so what, what you can do, and that's why we, we call it, um, um, you know, you, you essentially can have these uh, signposts and you say, if my thesis un unfolds as I anticipate, we will pass these signs that are saying that we're on the right track, that revenues will be higher, or profits will be higher, or whatever, whatever it is you're going to do. And those will, be, those will be time elements, right? So quarter, half year, year, and so forth. And then all of a sudden, you're giving yourself lots of intermediate feedback on the process of your decision making that we should have some faith will lead to the ultimate outcome of, of superior performance, right? So it's breaking down the problem. Um, and it's very much like MAP, right? You're breaking down the problem into its components. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's nice about these signposts is if, you, if your thesis rests on, you know, they're going to split up the company or spin off division X by a certain date, and that does not happen, that then gives you a pause point for, let's going back to our thing on updating your probabilities, is for you to mm -hmm. update your views, right? And by the way, it gives you not only uh, an occasion to do that, it compels you to do it, right? Because, right? And so... I think there are, there are a lot of nice things that go with it. Now, what it doesn't allow you to do is make up stories to explain away why you got things wrong. I, you know, that Barb Miller's quote at the beginning I love, which is, we're bad at prediction and great at, <laughs> great at explaining why the past, is, you know. And so you want to get you want to get away from that as, as, uh, as much as possible. And um, I, 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 re I refer to this paper in the very back, and it's a sort of weird paper from 20. 30 or 40 years ago about weather forecasters, but I've, I've always loved it because what they did is they they kept track of their weather forecasts probabilistically, and then they gave them that immediate feedback. And they did that year one, and then year two, what they found was they became markedly more calibrated. They became better at it. And so there, there you should have some belief and some faith that if you do this for yourself and you're helping your giving yourself honest feedback that's objective feedback that you'll just get better at it and so I, I found by the way just step one is asking people to attach probabilities to events you know, most people just don't think about it so uh, that that act in and of itself becomes helpful and then if you at, attach this uh, mechanism to keep track and give people feedback so it's again these are not they're not these are not widely used techniques at all, but they're very simple. And where, where they have been used, they prove to be very effective. I mean, also, I suppose what, in, in fact, thinking about it, what strikes me is that um, to an extent, they're quite scary because um, putting your views on, on the line to be um, to be ridiculed potentially or to get into trouble for being wrong. Right. And that's, I mean, so that's what Tedlock is. I, I mean, there, there are some exceptions, but for the most part, Tedlock has invited, you know, leading pundits to subject their forecasts to scorekeeping. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, they've uh, declined to do that, right? Because if you're in the pundit business, that's not really, you know, coming across as inaccurate is not a great thing. And, you're, and, and yeah. those guys are just storytellers, right, to some degree. But um, it depends what your objective is. So if your objective is to be a pundit and to get people to read you and, you know, have a consulting business or whatever, that may be very different than your objective being 
improving the quality of your actual assessments, right? And and I would imagine if you're in, in the intelligence community, for example, and you know accuracy is really important, um, you know that 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 these kinds of techniques would be important. And I think the investment world, most parts of the business world, I think these things are important. Um, it may not be important in the pundit world, um, the consulting world, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think I think for the most part we should acknowledge that this is these are these are these are skills worth cultivating with outcomes that can really be beneficial. Yeah, I am really, I really love, there was a line in the conclusion um, of this paper, which kind of, I kind of felt was so succinct and um, possibly captured absolutely everything you could, which is just that improving consistency can add a great deal of value. And, right. but I was wondering, am I being too simplistic? Is it, um, <laughs> does absolutely it, does not, you know, I'll tell you. I'll go off on another little tangent, and but um, Atul Gawande, you know, who's a one, you know, wonderful doctor and a beautiful writer himself, and so forth. He he did a podcast, and he talked about, and I guess he was very interested in philosophy, and he talked about uh, a paper that was written in the 1970s, and it was about medicine, and he said, how do we get better at medicine? And he said, basically, there are two domains. Domain number one is identifying new things, right? So new drugs, new therapies, new ways to do surgery, what have you. And so that's very sexy and very, you know, this novelty is very, you know, okay. And he said, and then the second way to improve is to just do what we know how to do better or more consistently. So, you know, this, and he obviously wrote this book called The Checklist Manifesto, which was based on um, um, Peter Pronovost's work at Johns Hopkins. And Pronovost's comment was, the doctors know exactly what they're supposed to do. They just don't do it. And if we just got them to do what they know they're supposed to do, i.e. consistency, we'd mm -hmm. get much better outcomes. And I would just say that, I mean, I, I think it's probably a little bit hyperbolic, but probably not too much, that, Paul Pro, that Peter Pronovost has saved probably hundreds of thousands of lives and hundreds of millions of dollars for hospitals by encouraging them to adopt checklists in a rigorous and systematic fashion. So just by being consistent much better outcome. So there's a really good concrete example of that idea working. So that is, and I think that's really what, that's noise reduction, right? Classic noise reduction. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that, I don't, I don't think it is simplistic at all. I think that's exactly right. And it's just, and, and that's why I, I thought that alpha theory thing about, you know, the <laughs> sitting down with the fund manager and saying, how, how do you want to size positions? And they lay it out all for you beautifully. And then they go off and do something totally different from what they say, right? Yeah, it's not that they don't know how to do it. It's just like the doctor's not washing his or her hands, or they're not doing whatever they're supposed to do in the procedure. And uh, it's not for lack of knowledge; it's for a lack of execution. So I, I, I think that's actually simple but correct. I mean, I, I, I was, I was, I was also thinking in terms of that comment. I mean, to get good feedback, if you're acting consistency, your your feedback is going to be a huge amount better. Because there aren't, the, there aren't the silly little um, things which you forgot to do, which um, which will muddy the waters. I think that's right. I agree. I had one question. I was wondering if there's anything that you do in, in terms of your own um, life and your own investments um, to control your own bias. Were there any techniques that you, you put in place? <clears throat> well, I have to say that and now because I spend a fair bit of time. So I, I yeah, I, I almost always think about these things almost now in, in second nature. The, um, the mm -hmm. one that if you, if you ask me for the most powerful thing 
um, and and what I wish I could go back and teach my myself of 30 years ago, you know, was, <laughs> is the idea of base rates. I think base rates are once it's once you understand the basic concept and understand how to apply it. And by the way, in the base rate book, you may have seen this, but it, you know, it's a, it's 150 pages, but but really the first 10 or 15 pages, and and there are a lot of pictures, so it's actually not that many words, is actually really valuable because not only it, it, it ex explains a little bit of how you think about integrating the inside versus the outside view because it's not all one or the other. And it also has a beneficial sort of side discussion on regression toward the mean. And investors, you know, whenever you say regression toward the mean to an investor, especially a value investor, they'll, they'll nod quite vigorously. But very few people know how to systematically think about the rate at which regression toward the mean occurs. And this actually gives you uh, an, an, some insights into how that works as well. So to me, base rates is, is a great example. So if people say things to me, it, the, the first thing that will go off in my head is, what, what, you know, how, does that, how does that fit with what we know about the base rate of performance for that kind of thing? So that definitely works. I do also, um, I, I could be better at it, but I do also tend to reasonably systematic seek alternative views. So, and whether it's political or, or something about a company or a thesis about an industry or what have you. So I'm perfectly happy to read about uh, the, the Bitcoin bull who thinks it's going to take over the world and the person who thinks it's completely a complete malarkey. So this idea of just exposing yourself and, and literally on the television, I'll watch di different channels from different parts of the political spectrum just to hear what people are saying on all sides. So I think that this idea of being open-minded mm -hmm. about things and and recognizing that if you're, if you're trying to get out of that echo chamber, so that'd be another little technique. But um, and then I try to I, I do I'm not as good as that I could, but I I do I do try to read well outside of the discipline, right? So, so, so I, I read a fair bit of stuff that's not investment related. So it's just to make sure that I'm trying to get myself exposed to different ideas. Could always do I mean I'm sure I could do better. Um, I, I got to say that that's the thing is like, you know, having been around this and having taught this and so forth, it does help. I mean, uh, it, it, I, I know now, you know, we, we wrote a piece called literally methods to improve decisions. And um, those 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 are things I actually believe in. And um, it, it, it's second nature might be strong, but in other words, I it's the first set of tools I reach for when I try to think properly. Right, right. I mean, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's very, it's, I, 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 I think it's very, I mean, implementing knowledge one, oneself is actually far, yeah, far harder than acquiring it and expressing it to others, I, I think sometimes, so, it's, um, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Um, great, it real, such a pleasure to talk to you. I feel, no, I feel much fine. wiser. Yeah. As a result. <laughs> no, thank you, no, it's, you're very kind. And thank you for spending so much time and preparing so many uh, great discussion points. It's, it's, uh, it's good stuff. And so Brilliant. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.